comes from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you do not know shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what that which I what that which I purpose, and shall succeed in that thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In the classic uh, French film, Jean de Forêt, people from a local village are conspiring against this adjacent landowner named Jean, who owns this plot of land, because they want the land. They want his land. And, and so they, they plot on how they can make his little farm fail so they can take over his land that he's inherited. Rain is very scant in the area, and so they, they sneak onto his property, and they, they plug with cement this healthy spring of water. They plug it with cement, they cover it with dirt, and John is unaware that he has this spring of water on his property. But he knows of springs of water that are over a mile away. And so with this spring cemented shut and covered with dirt, unaware of it, he begins to make the trek of over a mile away to get water and to bring it back to his land. And it works for a while, but then there's the point at which it's just back-breaking experience. It's back-breaking for him day after day and week after week to go travel over a mile just to get water to bring back to his land. It's a really sad story. But it's a story that highlights the human condition. It highlights who we are living in this broken world. And that is that we're thirsty spiritually, emotionally, we're thirsty. 
and, and we exhaust ourselves on unsuccessful attempts at quenching that thirst. Matt mentioned it in the confession, whether it is job, person, money, vacations, accolades, you just build the list out. But we, we seek after these things to quench our thirst, and they don't work. And that's what Isaiah acknowledges here in chapter 55. He acknowledges there's a thirst, but then he actually talks about how that thirst is quenched. He answers one of the more important questions that I would say most important questions that you have to answer in life. In a world that's hard. And that is, how is your thirst quenched? How is the deep thirst of your soul quenched? First, it's quenched through the return to God. Isaiah opens this chapter well with the human condition, saying that everyone is thirsty. And then at the end of, of verse 1, the beginning, he says, come. Right? Come, everyone who thirsts. That's everyone. Everyone thirsts. And then he answers how, how that thirst is going to be quenched briefly at the end of verse 1. But then in verse 2, he picks up on the fact that we all attempt to quench that thirst. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? What's this verse teach? It teaches that we go to incredible lengths. We go to incredible lengths to get our thirst quenched, the deep thirst of our soul. One author explains it this way. Our world is a vast marketplace of unsatisfying but costly remedies for our God-shaped longings. Said really well. The problem is, not only do these things that you run after to quench your thirst not quench your thirst, but they actually increase your thirst. Preacher Howard Hendricks told the story of being invited to preach at a church in Texas, West Texas, when he was a student seminary. And he said this, this place was, uh, he said, you heard of nowhere? This was 25 miles beyond nowhere. And he said he arrived at this church and the crowds had gathered. They were streaming in. All 17 of them. And he said he preached his heart out with passion. Preached the gospel. And he preached about Jesus. And after his sermon, this tall Texan came up to him. And he said, you were wrong. Howard Hendricks says, well, sir, I've been wrong plenty of times. Give me the information. He said, in your sermon, you made a moronic statement. Now, I haven't quite heard that after one of my sermons, and I hope I don't. Maybe you thought it. But he heard it. You just, you made a moronic statement in your sermon. You said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. They said, that ain't true. Because you can give them salt. That salt makes you thirsty. In fact, 
if you're at the beach one day and you're really thirsty and you decide, let's call this water, and you start to drink the ocean water, it's not only not going to quench your thirst, but it's going to increase your thirst. What Isaiah is teaching here is that why do you spend your money, why do you spend your energy, why do you labor? What he's saying is that those things not only don't quench your thirst, but they actually increase your thirst. They make you more thirsty than what the alternative to this. And if those things don't quench your thirst, what does? Notice how God answers the question in verses 2 and 3. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Now in a short verse and a half, we have Three phrases. Listen diligently. Incline your ear. And hear. Incline your ear and come to me. What we see here is that coming to God and listening to God are one and the same thing. In fact, the language of repentance in this passage is returning to God. Verse 7, let, let him return to the Lord. Verse 3, come to me. Repentance is connected to listening and hearing God's Word. Our souls are thirsty for God's Word. We are Word-dependent creatures. That means we need to hear words from God our Father, and that that is actually what quenches our thirst. Which means that when you're, when you're not listening to God, when you're not hearing God, you're thirsty. And you become more thirsty when you try to find other things to quench, to quench that thirst. And what exactly is the word from God that your soul thirsts for? Look at the end of verse 3. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. God made a pledge to King David that his dynasty would last forever. Everlasting. The scriptures speak of Jesus Christ as the son of David. Jesus is the heir, the ultimate heir of the throne. What God says is, I had a sure, steadfast love for David and my sure and steadfast love for the son of David, Jesus Christ is sure that the covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ being the one on the throne forever and ever and ever, that God is committed to and has secured the eternal throne of Jesus Christ. And what, what God is saying here is that his love for Jesus Christ, sure and steadfast, is the same love for broken sinners that attach themselves by faith to Jesus Christ. That God's love for his very own son is the love that he has in the everlasting covenant, covenant with those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
And if that's the word that you need to hear from the Father, is this word of love spoken over you in the midst of your mess. Sean and Lena Tui, that's the real life couple in the movie The Blind Side, they tell the story of meeting a senator and hearing a story that was told by this senator. There's a little known or not well known congressional program that awards internships to kids that age out of the foster care system. So kids that never get adopted all the way up to the foster care system and then get to the point where they're no longer eligible for state support can be awarded an internship. And, and this senator that they were speaking to had done just that. He had awarded an internship to this, this young man to work with him. And he said he came into the office one morning Rushed in, had to go to a meeting, but as he came in, he saw the intern was already in the office. And he was in the mailroom, organizing the mailroom. And uh, the senator went by him and he said, This is amazing. This mailroom has never been this clean in Oregon. Great job. He walked away, and, and not for several minutes later, he, he, he looked at this young man. And he went up to him and said, are you okay? And he said, yes. And then he said, did I, did I say something that offended you? And he said, no, sir. So then what, what's wrong? This is what this young man said. That's the first time in my life that anyone has told me that I did something We are word-dependent creatures. We are dependent on word, and ultimately, our souls, at the deepest level, long to hear from our Heavenly Father, and long to hear words of affirmation and words of love from our Heavenly Father. That's what your soul is thirsting for. We long to hear the words of love and affirmation that God the Father spoke to his own son in Matthew 3.17 when he said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. That's what your soul longs for. And so repentance or returning to the Lord is turning from those things that we chase after to get our thirst quenched and turning to our Heavenly Father and hearing those words spoken over us. How does God speak this word of affirmation to you? Well, certainly, first and foremost, through His Word. We have it. We have God's Word. And this is how He speaks His word of affirmation and love over you. But God also speaks His word of affirmation and love through his body of Christ, which is the church. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you, now listen to this, we're word-dependent creatures. 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That word exhort means to strongly encourage. It means to give courage. It means to affirm, to love, to speak God's truth into someone. Let me ask you this way. How hard do you have to work to critique someone? Now, I, I don't mean actually speaking to them, because if you have a great fear of rejection, you may have enough self-control not actually speaking to them. But in your mind, how much effort do you have to put into thinking the worst of someone or thinking about what they've done wrong or critiquing them? It's not very hard, is it? It just holds off the flesh. That's what we do. But this business of encouraging, giving courage, is a work of the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit. It comes from God the Father who spoke it to His Son, and who speaks it to all who are attached to His Son by faith. And He speaks it through His people. Nelson Mandela, who worked to end apartheid in South Africa, which was a, a system of racial segregation. He was in prison for 27 years in his attempt to end apartheid. And it wasn't until after he got out of prison, 27 years in prison, that he was then actually voted as the president of South Africa. Listen to what he said. It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison have done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are and how real speech is in its impact on the way people live and die. Two questions for you. One, are you listening to God's Word? Now, I don't mean just reading it. You have to read it to listen to it, but you can read it and not listen to it. Are you listening to God's Word? Are you listening to the words that quench the thirst of your soul? And then the second question is, as God speaks His Word over you and comforts you and affirms you in the midst of your sinfulness and your brokenness, are you then speaking that Word to others? We need to hear Friend, co-worker, spouse, kids, siblings, family member, whoever it may be, we're word-dependent creatures. We need to hear it, and then we speak it. That's how the body of Christ works. How is your thirst quenched? First, through the return to God, returning to His word of affirmation and love spoken over you. But second, through the compassion of God. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that, so that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. Now this is answering the question, when you return to the Lord, who do you return to? Who is this God that you return to? In, in Hebrew poetry, there's this uh, thing called parallelism. And it basically means that the same thing 
is said twice in two different ways. And that's what happens here in verse 7. That he may have compassion on him, or he will abundantly pardon. Two phrases mean the same thing. Speaking of God's pardon, his mercy, his compassion. And this is incredible comfort and consolation for people like you and me, who are wandering from the Father all the time. We wander all the time, hourly, daily. And what this says is in our wanderings, as we look for other things to quench the deep thirst of our soul, that when we return to God, what we find is not a God that begrudgingly pardons, or a God that tepidly pardons, or a God that just merely accepts you. No, what this says is that we have a God who wraps his arms around us and sweeps us in. In fact, this is, this is beautifully illustrated in the, in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. They have a father that has two sons. And the younger son says to the, his dad, Dad, I want the inheritance. Which basically is saying, Dad, I don't want to wait until you got it. I don't want to wait that long. I, I, want your, I want your money now. And the father, he gives it to him. Large sum of money. And it says this young son goes off and he squanders it in reckless living. He parties it away until he has nothing left except the father who gave him the inheritance in the first place. This younger son returns to his father. And I love how Jesus describes this younger son's return to his father in Luke 15, 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He saw him like a long way off, which means his father was on the porch looking for his son, waiting, hoping his son would return. And not only that, when he saw him, he, he, he started a full sprint down the road. He's running to his son. Now, his son probably didn't look too good. He was hungry. He was dirty. Because we've already been feeding pigs. You know, pigs out. Probably had his shoulder slumped, tail tucked between his legs. And so the father embraced him. He swept him in. Now, here's the real challenge of that parable. If you were in the father's position, if you were the father in that story, would you have responded? If your son would come to you and say, Hey, Dad, can you give me the inheritance now? I don't want to wait till you're dead. I want the money now. In other words, I, Dad, I want your money. I don't really want you. Now, let's just assume that you give your son the inheritance. Okay, several hundred thousands of dollars. Right, this is a, a big, big inheritance. 
Your son going to go off and absolutely squander it. Women, drugs, alcohol, partying, vacations, exotic cars that he wrecks, does it all until he has nothing left. The money's gone. And he realizes I have nothing, but I do have my father who gave me the money in the first place. And that happened, and you saw your son walking down the road back to your house. And you, you knew he had blown it all. You got work. You knew that he had blown everything. How would you respond? How would you show your disappointment and your anger to teach him a lesson? Say, that's unacceptable, what you did, and you can never do that again? Or would you run down the road and sweep him up and embrace him and kiss him and throw a party for him? Now, right now, you've got all kinds of things going in your, in your heart and mind. You're like, oh, 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 oh. Right? But what if, no, but if you didn't do, what is it, right? You're, you're wrestling, right? We wrestle. And the reality is God understands that. He understands the tension of that. Like, wait a minute, you just freely embrace him as if nothing happened? Or is there a price to pay? Like, these are all the things that go on in our heart and our mind. And God knows it. And he speaks into it in verses 8 and 9. Well, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Commenting on these verses, John Calvin says this, There is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. Now it says that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. What are our ways and our thoughts then? Well, the natural flow of the human heart is towards reciprocity or payback or this for that or accounting. We are all by nature accountants, which means you earn something. There's merit, there's payback, there's reciprocity. That's how we work. Let me give you an example of how naturally this flows from the human heart. We have a good friend who was single for many years, got married late. And during those single years, served the Lord faithfully. But she wanted to get married, and all of her friends loved her deeply and wanted her to get married. And so the day came. She met her future husband. She got engaged. And she said one of the comments that was spoken to her over and over by people that loved her, and people had wanted to get married. She said, this was one of the comments that she heard numerous times. I am so happy for you. You deserve this. And it always rubbed her because she didn't deserve anything. But even just that natural response of, you've put in the time. You suffered well. You served the Lord well. You, you built up the chips. You, I mean, of course, you deserve God to bless you with this. Right? That's how naturally 
this flows from us. And you can, there are a number of situations like where we are, we're bent on earning and marrying stuff. The reason we do this is because we can't fathom mercy and compassion given to us abundantly and generously without payment. We don't, we don't have a category for that. And so what we do is we project our impoverished view of mercy and compassion on God. And believe that we have accurately portrayed who God is based on our impoverished view of mercy and compassion. His mercy and compassion is higher, wider, and deeper than our thoughts can imagine. And now let me, let me speak to Christ for a second. You say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. We just drove Christ out the door? No, God speaks into this in verse 1. This is why he can pour his compassion on you and pardon you abundantly. Verse 1. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Really interesting verse. He says two times, come by. There is a purchase. There is a price. There is a transaction, so to speak. It's just not yours to pay. You bring your poverty, which means your sin, your mess, your brokenness, your embarrassment, your shame, your guilt, you bring your poverty to a transaction that was completed nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and rose from the dead. The price was paid. And that's why God abundantly pours out His mercy and His compassion on you. We project this impoverished view of mercy and compassion that we have on God. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My compassion and mercy for, for returning sinners, sinners that return to me is beyond what you could ever, ever even fathom or imagine. It's like the grandson whose grandfather shows him a hundred dollar bill. And the grandson, with big eyes, sees a $100 bill. He goes, my granddad must be rich. And this little grandson doesn't even know that the grandfather owns billions of dollars of real estate. The $100 bill is the tiniest reflection of his immense wealth. And so it is with God. Our our compassion and mercy. When there's a, a, a drop of our compassion and mercy, it's but the tiniest reflection of God's immense compassion and mercy. Now, what does it mean? Well, just like I said that God delivers His words, we're word-dependent creatures, His words of affirmation and love through His word, but also through the body of Christ, through His church, so also God's compassion and mercy is delivered through the body of Christ, through his church. 
So if you are to be an agent of God's compassion and mercy to those around you, and if your compassion and mercy is impoverished by your bent towards payback and reciprocity, you got to earn it, you got to merit it, then it would follow that when you feel like you're being too merciful, and you're, you feel like you're being too compassionate, you're probably just right. Because of sin, you're always going to, you're always going to lean towards not being merciful and compassionate. Which means that we should be always moving towards what feels like lavish and generous displays of mercy and compassion that still don't even purely reflect and perfectly reflect our compassion and mercy of our God. Right? Ultimately, God, we, we will never perfectly reflect His mercy and compassion, but if we understand that our view of it is impoverished, then we should be going overboard to even attempt to get anywhere near God's compassion and mercy. What that means is that the church should be a community of people that are delivering mercy and compassion to one another in extremely lavish ways. Because that's who our God is. How is your thirst place? Through the return to God, through the compassion of God, and finally, through the promise of God. Look at verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What's this mean? Well, just as the rain nourishes the seed and causes it to sprout and bear fruit, so God's word plants the seeds of repentance in your heart. And then when you repent and return to the Lord, you then bear the fruit of that repentance. The point is this. When you repent and you turn to God, you don't say, I did. I was really strong. I saw the error of my ways and I turned to God and, you know, Good job, sinner. You did a good job. No, what this says is that if you repent, the only reason you did repent is because God's word had its effect in your heart. That God's word drew you to that repentance. That God's word is going out and continually drawing you back into the Father because God knows that you're straying and walking away and wandering all the time. And so repentance is the evidence of God fulfilling His promise here. That when His Word goes forth and goes out, it never returns empty. It accomplishes its purpose, which means when His Word goes out into the heart of one of His children, His child will come and repent. Repentance starts with the Spirit of God, with the heart of God, being poured into you so that you do respond. Which means, and this is beautiful, that when you repent, like I said, it's not the opportunity to go, wow, I just did a great job. 
that when you repent, when you find your heart soft towards your spouse, towards your children, towards a co-worker that you did wrong, whatever it may be, that's evidence of God fulfilling His promise and bringing you back and His Word accomplishing what it was sent out for. And when He brings you back as a returning sinner to the Father, He reminds you that He will do this over and over until you are brought into the new creation and the new world. That is described in verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thorns and briars. That's Genesis 3 language. That's the language of the curse that was placed on the world because of sin. And what verse 13 says, instead of a thorn, it's going to be a cypress. Instead of a briar, it's going to be a myrtle. The curse has been removed by Jesus, and it will be removed fully. And when, when God sends his word out into your heart and he draws you back to him through repentance, he reminds you that's going to happen over and over until he lands you in a new world, a new creation, where the curse is gone from him. Where it no longer exists because Jesus has taken it away. And the result of this is verse 12, for you shall go out in joy. The result of this is joy. And your thirsty heart rejoices. Peter Creed captures this well. He says, now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite, despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return here and sing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing a loss of a penny, less a scratch on a penny. Take you back that opening story. That landowner that had a spring on his property that was cemented shut and didn't know it was there and, and exhausted himself trying to find water. That's where everyone's at in this room. We exhaust ourselves. And the spring of the water of Jesus Christ is available to all. And that means that if you're in Christ, you're returning to that spring that you've already returned to. That means that if you've never trusted Christ, you're turning to that spring for the first time. And when you turn to that spring, you're going to find a God that sweeps you up with mercy and compassion. And you're going to find that the deep thirst in your heart, the deep thirst in your soul, is quenched. Let's pray. Father, we do, we confess, we have such an impoverished view of mercy and compassion. 
Then what flows naturally from us is merit and earning and payback. We're great accountants when it comes to sin, especially with the sin of others. And we confess that we take these impoverished views of mercy and compassion and we project them on you. Your Father, we pray that you would give us new eyes. The new eyes to see that your mercy and compassion is beyond anything that we can fathom. And that you pour your mercy and compassion out on us because your Son, Jesus, prayed to Christ for our sin. And your wrath was poured out on Jesus for sin instead of us. So, Father, would we be a people who listen to you intently? That when we read your word, that we wouldn't just read it, but we would listen to it. That your words would quench the deep thirst of our souls. And Father, would we be a people that speak those words of life into others? And would we go overboard with mercy and compassion? Would we be lavish and generous with our displays of mercy and compassion to those around us? Father, quench our thirst even now as we close by singing. We sing these words to you. Would they sink deeply into our hearts? and quench those very thirsty parts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.